we would do Revelation 17, 18, 19, and 20, and 21 all together. I don't think you guys got four hours, so we're going to have to break this up a little bit. Because the beginning of Revelation 19 goes in perfectly with what we did last week in 17 and 18. And really, to get the full effect of Revelation 19, you've got to go right into chapter 20. So I encourage you, I'm hoping to get through the first uh, 10 verses tonight of Revelation 19. But this, this is the ultimate chapter. I mean, this, this is it right here. Revelation 19 is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Dustin, if you don't mind putting that uh, timeline up that we've been referring to here for the last few weeks in our study, this is it. And when Jesus Christ returns, it changes the world. It changes the world. He gets to come and rule and reign for a thousand years. So we've been working through Revelation, and we're, and we're up to this area right here now, the second coming. We have got done with the bold judgments last week, uh, and we're right in this area here, the second coming. I, and I tell you, I am so excited. I don't know if we'll get to it next week, because I think next week's going to be the actual, literal second coming of Jesus Christ. What's going to happen when he literally lands on this earth? He's going to split mountains. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Revelation 20 is the millennial reign. And the millennial reign is my favorite thing to talk about in the Bible. And we're going to have a great time talking about that. So these next few chapters have so much information in it. And I hope it really changes the way you think about eternity. Because you're involved in this. You're going to rule and reign with Christ. You're going to return with Christ. If, if you're here tonight born again and saved, this is what your future looks like. If you're here tonight and you're not born again and saved, I sure hope you're really listening to what is going to happen. Because you do not want to be on the wrong side of this one. And what we have here tonight is the process of this starting. But with that being said, we have the first 10 verses here, Revelation 19. A little bit of background. Last week was Revelation 17 and 18, and we talked about Babylon. Babylon represents a symbolic union, a symbolic union of the world and the Antichrist together. We talked about this religious system of Babylon. You have to remember, once again, when the rapture happens, all born-again believers are taken out. That leaves a whole lot of people left in this world. A whole lot of people that are very religious. Very religious. The Muslim faith will be left intact. The Buddhists, the Hindus, etc. They'll be left intact. You're going to see a lot of other supposedly Christian denominations that won't be affected too much by the rapture of the church. There's going to be a very large religious group left in this world. And they're going to form this union with the Antichrist. And eventually the Antichrist will turn on them. So we talked about religious Babylon. Then we also talked about economic Babylon. This system of, of greed and wealth and money and power that eventually is going to be destroyed. And so that's what happens in Revelation 17 and 18. Is this religious Babylon, this economic Babylon is destroyed. And it's over and it's done. And that's where we left off with last week. week. So here in Revelation 19, we get the celebration going on in heaven. Verse 1, Revelation 19, after these things, what things? The destruction of Babylon, symbolic and literal. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. That's a pretty important verse right there. Now, that phrase, hallelujah, right there, that's only used four times in the New Testament, and it's all used in this chapter. One commentator said it's about the best praise word that you could ever use for what the Lord is doing and what he's done. It comes over from a Hebrew word that means praise the Lord. But you don't see it a lot in the New Testament, but you see it here four times in Revelation 19. This is what heaven is doing 
when Babylon is finally destroyed. They break out in praise. Hallelujah. And what do they say? Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Look at those words. Glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. Don't belong to anybody else, only him. What was Babylon doing? Babylon was trying to have a lot of glory. Babylon was trying to have a lot of honor. Babylon was trying to have a lot of power. That's what the Antichrist has been doing for the last few years, having glory, honor, and power, and maybe even pushing this concept of salvation. God says enough is enough. It's time for judgment to happen, and that's what happened. And so heaven rejoices over this judgment happening. You may not know it. You have been praying for this judgment your entire life. Anytime you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, which is really kind of a bad name for that prayer, but anytime you've ever prayed it, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, you are praying for the return of Jesus Christ on this earth. Now, you may never have thought that. Maybe it was just words you were saying, but when you pray thy kingdom come, you're saying, Lord, I want you to come and rule and reign on this earth. And guess what happens? Revelation 19, he does. If you've ever had a moment of where you're just done, you're just tired, and you just say, I want to go home. Lord, just now, can't we just go home now, return? You have prayed for this judgment to happen because this is what happens when Christ returns. If you've ever been frustrated by the world, you watch the news. You see things going on in this nation and other nations, and you're so completely frustrated and filled with righteous anger, and you say, how much longer do we have to put up with this? God says, I hear you. It's time for this to come. And this is what this is. Salvation and glory, honor and power belong to the Lord. And at the second coming of Christ, he proves that to everybody. Everybody. We're going to get to it next week. But there's going to be this vanity of the world that's going to try to take on God. And then in the valley of Megiddo, at the second coming, Jesus Christ comes, literally sets foot on this earth and destroys them. And he goes right into the thousand year reign of Christ. It's an amazing thing. Absolutely amazing. So we have to set the tone there with hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. There's going to be a judgment coming. And now, if you ever start to think this doesn't sound fair, look at verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her blood of his servants shed by her. True and righteous are his judgments. We've talked about this numerous weeks before. When God judges, it's a fair judgment. We have had the 144,000 that ministered for years. They proclaimed the gospel. People rejected. We had the two witnesses that proclaimed the gospel. People rejected. We have angels flying around heaven proclaiming the gospel. The people rejected. We just did the bold judgments two weeks ago. And the Bible says they did not want to repent of their sins and of their deeds. They would rather be in sin. God will give them a chance in Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment to stand before God themselves and give an account of their lives. That's pretty fair to me. So in verse 2, fair, excuse me, true and righteous are his judgments. He has dredged the great harlot, Babylon. He has corrupted the earth. That's that system of just greed and lust and money. And he's avenged her. And he's avenged her, why? On the blood of his servants shed by her. This Babylonian system that killed and martyred so many Christians. Judgment has finally come. And what's the response again? Verse 3, and they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. That shows a finality to this judgment. It's over and done. It is completely destroyed, and it's not going to come back again. Complete, total destruction. And once again, that is what we have prayed for. 
Verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures, introduced back to us in Revelation 4, fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. There's that word again. There's that word. I heard a teaching, it's probably been about 20 years ago. They said, we've got to be careful with our words sometimes. We have certain words that no longer mean anything. You know, when you talk about our God is an awesome God, that word awesome really doesn't mean anything anymore. We use it all the time for anything. We'll go to McDonald's and say that was an awesome milkshake. Yes, God and the milkshake, they are equivalent. You know, that's what we do. This word, hallelujah, right here, is used so limited in the New Testament and only used right here. It really shows the importance of this word, that heaven almost seems to save this word here in the New Testament, for what this miraculous event is. And amen, which means so be it. This is what everybody has been waiting for. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent is a big fancy word that means all-powerful. See, for for centuries, if not centuries, for thousands of years, people have wondered about the power of God. You know, Peter talks about this at the end of his epistle. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish. So God here in his grace and mercy has been very, very patient with us. But now it's done. It's time to be over. Verse 6, and he shows his omnipotence. He shows his power. And that's exactly what it is. Heaven realizes what's happening. They realize Babylon is being destroyed. They realize that he's getting ready to return. They realize what's going on. And heaven stops and rejoices over the power of God, the righteousness of God, everything. And it's just an amazing setup to what just happened in Revelation 17 and 18 and what's going to happen here now in Revelation 19. Do we have any quick questions, comments about the first six verses that set the heavenly scene here of their rejoicing over Babylon being destroyed and also their rejoicing over the preparation of the literal return of Christ? Any quick questions, comments? All right, now we change gears. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb is come And his wife has made herself ready. Now we switch gears. We go from rejoicing about Babylon, rejoicing in God's power, to now we jump to a wedding. And guess what? We're the bride. We're the bride of Christ, the Bible says. Now we need to build on this a little bit here. Because I don't think we fully understand this role a little bit. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 11. We got a lot of little verses. Most of the time we don't take you to one verse. But I want you to mark these, know these, understand these. 2 Corinthians 11. As you're going to 2 Corinthians 11, there's a great passage in Ephesians 5. And it's a passage we use a lot on marriage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. You know, wives, respect, honor, and submit unto your husbands. But Ephesians 5 does this beautiful build-up to say it's really a picture of us and our salvation in Jesus. Think about that for a second. Men, the way you treat your wives is supposed to be a picture of the way Jesus treats the church. Now think about that. How you treat your wife is supposed to be a witness and a reflection on how Jesus treats the church. So if you just stop and take a look on how you treat your wife spiritually, emotionally, and physically, is that how Jesus would treat the church? Now, wives, the way you respond to that is also supposed to be a way the church responds hopefully to Christ. And this is why marriage is so attacked in this world today. 
Because it is such a witness. Can you imagine if Christian marriages were really, really different from world marriages? I mean really different. Because a lot of times when I talk to Christians in their marriage, their marriage really doesn't seem much different than the world. Can you imagine if our marriages were such a different light that when the world stopped and saw a Christian marriage, they would stop and say, there's something completely different about you guys. But most of the time when the world looks at a Christian marriage, it doesn't look too much different than a worldly marriage. And that's a real shame because it's supposed to be part of our outreach to the world. So the whole point of Ephesians 5 is marriage is supposed to be a picture of us in Christ. We're the bride of Christ. Paul takes it one step further here in 2 Corinthians 11. Take a look at verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul says, I have betrothed you. I have engaged you to Jesus Christ And I want you to be pure in Christ Jesus. There's a reason why the bride is supposed to wear white. The idea of purity. Saving yourself for marriage. Paul is saying right here, you're supposed to have a, be a virgin to Christ. See, in the Old Testament, he used all these examples of Israel cheating on God and going out with these foreign nations. Paul is saying, you're supposed to be devoted to Christ, engaged to Christ, and so therefore you're waiting for the marriage to Christ. And just as a bride is supposed to show up on her wedding day pure and beautiful, you're supposed to show up on your wedding day to Jesus Christ pure and beautiful. Now, maybe ladies can understand that a little bit better than us men. I'm telling you right now, I've taught men's studies before. It's difficult at a men's study to remind the men you're the bride of Christ. It just doesn't sit well. Most of us men don't get up and think about, I want to make myself look beautiful for the day. I get a haircut when Dawn says I look like a bum. She says, your beard needs trimmed. Go. That's what she says. So I go do it. You know, we don't stop and think about this. But yet, this is the analogy the Bible uses, that we are the bride of Christ, and we're supposed to be preparing ourselves for this marriage. And we're supposed to be chaste and pure and holy in what we do. See, go back to verse 7 of Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice. Heaven is rejoicing, and give God glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. We have made ourselves ready. That's what we're supposed to do. How have we made ourselves ready? Verse 8. And to her, the bride, us, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know how you make yourself ready? Righteous acts. Now, what's the word righteous mean? It just means right. I got a little phrase I use with the boys. I tell them, just be Christians, please. That should be enough, right? I mean, we, we've been here, your Wednesday night. You love Jesus more than other people. You came out on a Wednesday night. So therefore, if I tell you just be a Christian, you should get that. What would a Christian do? So what are righteous acts? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Now, if you start thinking here, well, wait a second. I didn't think works saved us. Works don't save us. This is a fascinating thing. Let's build on this here for a while now. Let's talk about righteous acts. Can you go with me to Philippians 2? Philippians 2. And if you want to get ahead, we're also going to go to Colossians 1 which is just one book to the right of Philippians. Philippians 2. Let's talk about righteous acts that we're supposed to have. Look at Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
These are verses we skip over sometimes. You're supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you've heard me explain this before. When you work out, you're not adding muscles. If I go work out my biceps, my biceps do not become triceps. I don't gain a muscle. My muscles that are there become stronger. If I go work out my triceps, they don't become quadriceps. And if I work out my quadriceps, I don't know what the five is. Quinticeps, I don't know. Point is, you don't gain a muscle. You take what is already there and make it stronger. So when you read verse 12 where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you're not saving yourself. You're taking the salvation that is there through Jesus Christ and you're working it out. And to prove that, look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in verse 12 he says, Work out your salvation. Then in verse 13 he says, I'm the one in you doing the work. These are the righteous acts we're supposed to be doing. So often you see people get saved, and they stop. I don't know, maybe a little devotions here and there. Maybe I'll serve one Sunday a month or something like that. But, but this ministry-minded, eternally focused, heaven, hell, it's just not there. The parable of the sower and the seed says we get choked out by the world. And God is constantly trying to tell us, work out your salvation. Righteous acts. It's God who works in you to do things. Let's build on this. Go to Colossians 1, please. Colossians 1. Take a look at verse 29. Paul again says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Paul says, I'm out there striving, working hard, not with my own effort, with his working which works in me. I like how it says in the New Living Translation. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. See, it almost sounds like God's making contradictory statements. Verse 12, work out your own salvation. But then you've got to read verse 13. It's God that works in you. Verse 29, strive, work hard, because it's God working in you. So really what it comes down to is what is the righteous acts of the saints? That we're supposed to be clothed in? It's the works that we do. These are not works that save us. These are works that we do because we are saved. Please remember all these verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. Please remember uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 That the righteousness of Jesus became our righteousness. Righteousness, once again, is just a fancy word. It means to be made right. I can't make myself right. I take the righteousness of Jesus... And then when I am born again and saved, now I go out and say the works I do are not works for salvation. They're works because I have been changed in Christ Jesus. I've been changed on the inside, so that changes how I live on the outside. So what it's saying here back in Revelation 19, you know, I always get this amazing view of weddings. I do a lot of weddings. And I'm always standing up here. And, and I can see it happen. I see the, the uh, doors open, and then the bride comes in, and she's all prettied up, all dressed up, everything. And it's supposed to be this amazing moment of revealing all the time, energy, and effort she put in to the hair, to the makeup, everything, the dress. And it's always fascinating to me when I do a wedding, because I'll say, okay, you know, ladies, what time do you need to be out here to get ready? And let's say the wedding's at 3. They're like, oh, we're coming out at 9. We're coming out at 10. They need six hours to get ready. And it's like, guys, what time are you coming out? I don't know, like quarter till 3. You know, that's all they need. (laughs) They need like 10 minutes. Most of the time they forget to zip their zipper and tie their shoes, you know? (laughs) 
So this picture of the, the bride arrayed beautifully. I know as a man, sometimes it's hard for me to see that, to get that. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, James, you're my bride. Put some effort into this. Look pretty for me. Do something. Put some effort. And he's saying, what do I, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Verse 8, be clean and bright with the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, I can't do righteous acts. He goes, I know you can't do righteous acts. But when I work in you, then you can. And I think a lot of what Christianity is, is just being open to the Holy Spirit. What are the righteous acts that God has called you to do? I don't know. Maybe it is shoveling snow Friday. Maybe it's contacting a widow. Maybe it's being more time in the word and prayer. Maybe it's loving your unlovable husband. Maybe it's loving your unlovable wife. Maybe it's showing up on a Wednesday night and saying, I'm open, Lord. That's a righteous act. Lord, I'm here, I'm available, and I'm doing this for you. And you've got to remember that. Jesus did not save you just to have you sit and twiddle your thumbs till death or rapture. Jesus saved you to go out there and change the world through Christ. Be Holy Spirit-led, do righteous acts for him, and see where it takes you. Because eventually those righteous acts, that's what you're going to be wearing to your own wedding coming up. Any quick questions, comments about the marriage? Us being married to Christ, we're the bride of Christ. Because we're going to change direction here again in verse 9. Any quick questions, comments? We good? Okay, now, after the wedding, verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the party. This is the reception. This is what we look forward to. Once again, going back to doing weddings. Like I said, I do a lot of weddings. And I always remind the, remind the bride and groom. Careful how much time and energy you put into this. The whole ceremony is going to last about 15 minutes, maybe 20. Don't get stressed out. Don't get worked up. And by golly, don't spend a whole lot of money. It's not worth it. Where's the real fun? At the reception, where people can relax. Remember, the purpose of a wedding is to see a bride and groom come together, and I get to represent Christ saying that in the name of Jesus, you two are publicly declaring you want to be one for the Lord. The purpose of a wedding is not so the bride can fulfill every dream and fantasy she's had since she was a little girl. The purpose of the wedding is to see two people come together in one in Christ and then say, now we are missionaries as a unit to go out there and affect Jesus for the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So this wedding right here, the marriage supper of the Lamb, This is the party that happens afterwards. Now, you also have to think like a New Testament Jew 2,000 years ago. The way weddings were done, and you've heard me talk about this, and if you were with us uh, in December when we did our Christmas messages, we went into a lot more detail about this. It would not have been uncommon that growing up that you would have a neighbor and you would have neighbors that would come together and they would each have a child around the same age, and they would have a very, very young age maybe four or five years old, maybe even earlier, stop and say, hey, your girl's about the same age as my boy. Do you want them to get married? And that was the romance of it. And they would say, sure, sounds good. They would work out a dowry. They would work out a price. And boom, right there, you already know who your spouse is. Then what happens is, as they get a little bit older, you would start then preparing for this. Remember what Jesus said, I go and prepare a house for you? The, the groom-to-be would start preparing a house, and there's a betrothal period. 
where you are legally bound and legally married. You don't share a wedding bed. You don't live together. But you're legally bound and legally married. And that's where Mary found out she was pregnant with Jesus. That's why it was such a big deal. Because in the eyes of the time... Both Joseph and Mary were married at that time. Joseph was probably preparing the house for them to come have this wedding ceremony. Now, it goes back a little bit. You have to understand that you didn't know when the wedding was going to happen. You'd see signs of it. You would see the groom working on the house. You would see the groom getting things ready. But it wasn't like today where you get to save the date two years out in advance. You didn't know when it was going to happen. And so what would happen is when the groom said it was ready and the father has agreed that it's ready, guess what the groom would go do? Get his wife. See, Jesus is up there preparing a place for us. And when Jesus says it's done and God the Father says it's done, God the Father says, go get your bride. Rapture of the church. We're up. We get to go now. Get married to the Lord. And then what would happen is you'd have this ceremony, but the real event was the party afterwards. And it was a huge event. I mean, a huge deal. Customary at the time. Remember, Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine. And where did it happen? At a wedding. Because that was that cultural of event. That's why Jesus would have gone. Think back as you go read through the Gospels. All the parables that deal with weddings. Because it's a huge event and deal. So this marriage supper of the Lamb, this is a huge event. And what it says is verse 9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You want to be at this event. Because guess what? If you're not at this event, things aren't looking real good for you eternally. This is where you want to be. Who's going to be at this event? Well, you're going to have the church, the bride of Christ. And this gets into some debate. And it's not worth getting worked up about. It's not worth getting all whatever. But it looks like who's at this event is us, the church. And then it looks like you're going to have the wedding guests. Old Testament saints, tribulation saints. They get to come to the party. And it looks like this wedding reception, if you will, kicks off the millennial reign. And that's a big party, what it is. And how we know it's kind of different is because we can look back to what John the Baptist said. When you read about John the Baptist... You have to remember, John the Baptist is an Old Testament character that just happens to live in the New Testament. So always think of John the Baptist that way. John the Baptist described himself as a friend of the bridegroom and not the bride. Think about that. It's in John 3.29, if you want to check that out. He described himself as a friend of the bridegroom, not the bride. Because he's not part of the church, the body of Christ. He died before Christ died on the cross. The tribulation saints... They're a separate group as well, too. And they have their own reward. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. They will rule and reign, but they have their own separate reward. This is a party for us, the church, the body of Christ, and everybody else gets to come and gets to be invited to it. And that's why it's such a blessing. And verse 9, these are the true sayings of God. God says, this is what you're looking forward to. This is what you wait for. This is the big event. Now, I don't say this to pick or attack. But do we think this is the big event? Or do we really think the big event is next week because i got two days off in a row? Do we really think the big event is going to be this spring because we have this vacation that we planned for a really long time? Or do we really think the big event is going to be tomorrow night because I get to go do this? Those are such temporary passing things where the Lord is trying to say, heaven is rejoicing over this event. What would happen if we'd have the same mindset as well? 
where we'd say, I can't wait to be the bride of Christ. I can't wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb. I can't wait for the millennial reign. I can't wait for the return of Jesus Christ. And in fact, I want as many people as I can with me. So therefore, I'm going to go out and be a light and a witness in all I do and say. And basically, and don't use these words because it won't come across real well. But you're basically doing is saying, I want you to come to my wedding. I want you to be in my wedding. I want you to be the bride with me. That's not a great witnessing tool. Don't try that. But that's really what you're saying. I want you to come to know Jesus Christ because this is what we're striving for. This is the goal here. And that's what eternity is about. So we'll stop there real quick. Does anybody have any quick questions about this? Uh, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, what it represents, what it means before we move on here. Huh. Yeah. No, because the problem is we're using an earthly mindset to describe a heaven reality. The heavenly reality, this is a symbolic union to represent the intimacy that is in a marriage. That's the intimacy we're supposed to have with Christ. He looks at us as a single unit, the church, not as a group of individuals. And he looks at us as, remember what it says, and uh, my mind's blanking on where it's at. It says, we are neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So the Lord does not look at us from that perspective. Good question, though. Good question. His question was, no one's ever asked him, but couldn't it almost be taken as this is a a bigamous relationship and a homosexual relationship because of the amount of people and male, female, etc.? So like I said, we have to look at it from a spiritual reality rather than an earthly reality. We've got to remember that. He, he did, but he gave hints of it in his earthly ministry of dealing with the Gentiles. He, he made it very clear, I have come for the nation of Israel. But every now and then you'll see him going to the Samaritan woman in uh, John 4. You see it with the woman with the issue of blood. There's some hints that she was a Gentile. The greatest example of it is the uh, Gentile woman that came and asked for the healing upon her child. And Jesus said to her that I can't give you the scraps to the dogs. And she said, well, even the puppies get to eat a little bit. And he said... You get it, that there's going to be something coming to the Gentiles. And Jesus came right out and kind of spoke in this parable code where he told the Jews, there's a whole other group of people that you guys don't understand. But you're absolutely right. The main focus was Israel, but you see little hints of it being to the Gentiles as well. Somebody else had their hand up, I thought. Yeah, John. Uh, small time ago, you think of it It is, and and it goes back to what it says in Romans. I think it's in Romans 8, about the mind can't grasp the depth, height, and love of God. We we can't. We just really can't understand how much the Lord loves us and and what that relationship means. That's an amazing thing. And this is part of what the marriage supper of the Lamb will be. Anybody else got anything? Yeah, Kathy.
There is a oneness in that, that Jews and Gentiles, I think of Romans 9, 10, and 11, where it talks about how the Gentiles have been grafted in with the Jews. There definitely was a Jewish focus during the Gospels. There definitely was a Jewish focus during the first half of the book of Acts. But once the Jews rejected it, the focus became the Gentiles. And, um, you know, amen for God's love. Which was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's just the Jews didn't see it, they didn't get it. Remember that word that Paul uses. He uses the word mystery. And anytime you see the word mystery in the New Testament, what he's trying to say is this. This is an Old Testament fact that was, that was hard to understand and hidden, and the New Testament shines a light on it to be able to understand it. And part of the mystery is, is the gospel would go to us Gentiles. And I know to us that's not a big deal because we're all Gentiles. We don't think much about it. But if you rewind the clock a couple thousand years, the gospel going to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that's a really big deal. It's <laughs> a really big deal. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, Megan. Oh, there's definitely Christians in, our, in other countries. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Um, we have a tendency sometimes, I think, to have a very American-centric mindset where there's 6 billion people in the world and we're only 350 million of it, so... There's a lot of Christians in other parts of the world. Yeah. So, amen to that. Anybody else have anything here? Okay, real quick, last point. Look at verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is so overwhelmed at this moment of this heavenly scene of uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, he hits his knees and he starts worshiping the messenger instead of the message. And he starts worshiping the angel. And the angel has to correct him. This, to me, shows an issue that we as humans have dealt with for thousands of years. We want to worship something. And so we have, over the years, we can worship creation, we worship idols, we worship men, we worship women, we worship angels... We're always worshiping something. And so once again, we don't deal with what they dealt with 4,000 years ago, little carved images that we worship. Some religions still have that to an extent. But now we start worshiping other things. Maybe it's a paycheck. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's power. I don't know. But you see a danger here in verse 10 that there's always that danger of getting your focus off the person worthy of worship and onto something else. And the problem is there's a very tangible issue with this. It is the angels right there. I should worship him. And we have to walk in faith, not by sight, when it comes to the Lord. Don't ever get your eyes on a man or a ministry or a church or a thing. You want it to be on the Lord. great example of this is back in the book of Judges. There's this guy by the name of Gideon. And so he had an ephod made. An ephod is just a, it's a fancy thing to help... Figure out the will of God. It's an Old Testament way of doing it. That's not really the point of the story. But after Gideon died, the nation of Israel took Gideon's ephod and started worshiping it. That's just what they do. And this is what we do. We find something and we worship it. And you may say, oh, I don't do that. I'm just being honest. Check your heart. I check my heart. There's certain things that we elevate. We just got to be careful about this. So what are we supposed to be doing? Verse 10, very simple, two words, worship God. 
He's the only one worthy of it. And I love this little part in verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Please remember prophecy. Prophecy is, the purpose of it is to point you towards Christ. Prophecy is two things. It's either foretelling future events, which that's what Revelation is doing, or it's foretelling. It's speaking forth for God. You know, according to what Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy is supposed to be edifying, it's supposed to be encouraging, and it's supposed to be comforting. Edifying, encouraging, comforting. I sometimes hear messages from people that claim to be prophets, and they really just sound really angry. Prophecy is supposed to be edifying, encouraging, and comforting. What is the testimony of Jesus in the spirit of prophecy? This is just a verse I wanted to finish with. Last reference. Go with me to Matthew 11, please. I think this passage right here gives a nice little sum up of the heart of Christ. And you know it very well. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the love of the Savior right there. That's, that's the groom. We're the bride. That's the focus. And what a beautiful spirit that is to say, that's, that's our Savior. And this is the thing about Christianity. If that's what we could represent to the world, who would not want that? I mean, who wouldn't want to understand heaven and Jesus and the love he has for us, the grace he has for us to take us out of hell? That's the gospel message. That's the good news right there. And that's what we want to go do. So that's where we're going to stop here for tonight, which puts us in real great shape. Next week is the literal second coming of Christ. Um, we get to talk about that. We get to talk about him returning, what that's like. And then we may even get to the millennial reign a little bit. Like I said, I'm really looking forward to the second coming and the millennial reign. A lot of good stuff in there. Alrighty, guys, any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? Alrighty, I think we've been ending this way here for most of Revelation. Please remember, it is really great to mark these things down, to know this stuff, to understand this and think this is really neat. But unless this impacts us in how we live and how we act, What's the point? I want you to mark it, memorize it, understand it, grasp it, but I also want us to go out and live it out and all that we say and do. Would you stand with me so we can pray? Lord, as we just come to you now, we are thankful for the evening, thankful for the time to get together and worship you. And I just pray we live this, not just talk about it, but live it. I go back to that phrase, the righteous acts of the saints. We can't earn the salvation, Lord, but because we're saved, we want to go out and live it. Help us to do that. Whatever that looks like for us as individuals, just help us be the people you've called us to be. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, if you guys have anything you want to pray about, come on up here. Let me know. We can pray. And if you are interested in getting some names to check with the weather, email me, text me, or you can try to talk to me tonight here as well too. You guys have a good week and God bless.